ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of One Perfect Game, the show about video games and the people who play them. My name is Matt Tilby, I'm your host for this wonderful adventure, and my guest for today's episode is a New Zealand stand-up comedian who, let's be honest, puts himself through some not-so-wonderful adventures for our entertainment. He is one half of the worst idea of all time, New Zealand's most popular comedy podcast of all time, with over 14 million downloads. And he does that alongside fellow comedian and masochist Guy Montgomery. He also founded the Little Empire Podcast Network and has performed in places like the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. It is a big one perfect game. Hello to Tim Bat. Tim, welcome along. And a sincere Tim Bat Kiora to you and your listeners, Matthew. <laughs> How are you, buddy? I'm doing very well. Good uh, good day to you. It's obviously a, a bit of a sudden recording. We had uh, uh, plans which were, I guess, uh, thrown into disarray by the uh, the time difference between Australia and New Zealand. Well, um, for me, it's actually happening completely on time. Uh, I <laughs> did the math incorrectly and, and gave you a different time, but luckily you were accommodating. Yes, thankfully. All, all of it's uh, worked out, thankfully. But uh, yeah, how you how you doing, man? Obviously, you know, a lot of interesting products and, and projects that you've been sort of getting into. Um, I know that for me, I sort of became aware of the worst idea of all time. I think through uh, one of your sort of, I guess, side projects, uh, of course, Till Death Do Us Blart or... Uh, commonly referred to as Death Blart, um, as a big sort of uh, McElroy Brothers fan. How did that come about? Like, it, 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 it almost feels like, you know, like those weird sort of crossover comics, like, you know, it would be like Batman meets like the Harlem Globetrotters or something. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's just such a weird mix of, of, of characters and, and people in this, in this sort of annual podcast. So how did that, that uh, collaboration come about? We met the McElroys when we went to a podcast convention in Los Angeles in maybe like 2016, perhaps. And I can't remember exactly how the meeting happened, but we were both at the convention and uh, I think they loosely knew about us and I knew about them. And somehow we, we met and got to talking and uh, then hung out and I think had a, had a few beers with them and hung out in their uh, hotel for a bit and became buddies. And I think we thought of the idea for the podcast like during that very first meeting. We were like, we've got to make something together. And uh, yeah, the, the alchemy all came together and that beautiful concept came out of its constituent parts, which was five tired, slightly drunk men. <laughs> it's it's an interesting concept of course it obviously stems from the worst idea of all time and and for anyone who hasn't i guess listened to uh yourself and guy montgomery i guess uh <laughs> putting yourself through you know physical and, and mental anguish what what is the the podcast about we watch and review the same movie over and over and over again. So we did a whole year of watching Grown Ups 2 on a weekly basis. Uh, then we did Sex in the City 2. Then we did We Are Your Friends, which is a Zac Efron movie. Then we did Sex in the City 1. So we've watched all of those movies at least 52 times a piece uh, and reviewed them. And now we, uh, in the current season, we decided to do something a little bit different, which was watch and review all of the 
Emmanuel movies, which is this long-running softcore pornography franchise, which uh, <laughs> used to be on TV on Sky One in New Zealand after midnight on a Friday and Saturday. And Guy and I grew up with it. Oh my god, it's it's such a like a weird selection of movies. Like I'd I'd just been binging um, the emergency pandemic season that you guys did of uh, of Home Alone three. Uh, it was a movie that. When I was younger, I definitely watched quite a bit and had um, fond memories of. But sort of hearing you two dissect this movie in its most meticulous form, I think, you know, having nothing else really to do, like hearing the, the joy in both of your voices when you, you utter the name Burton Jernigan, I think is, <laughs> is fantastic. It's, so, it's such a good name. It is undeniably one of the top five cinematic names of all time. Like it, it definitely just reminded me of because um, obviously the Olympics are on. It, it sort of reminded me. Do, do you remember um, the Dutch swimmer uh, Peter van den Hoogen band? Absolutely not, and I'm all the poorer <laughs> for it because that is a great name. It it was it was a, a long running sort of uh, joke with my family about uh, that wonderful surname and, and full credit to him. He was a, a champion for it, but um, yeah, like. How I guess how did you decide on these movies? Obviously, look, let's let's be honest. All maybe four or five of the movies that you picked up are not you know cinematic masterpieces. But I mean, there's obviously a broad selection to choose from. How did you narrow down on on those ones? Um, I would like to say there's some sort of system or rigorous criteria that we <laughs> put the decision making process through. But the reality is we. We kind of sh- we shoot from the hip, kind of dudes, which is why we so frequently put ourselves in these perilous cinematic situations because we go, oh, that'd be really funny, and then we dive into the pool and we're like, oh no, oh no, we can't swim. This was really hard and stupid. <laughs> this sucks. Why are we six months into watching Sex in the City too? Um, so we kind of try to find movies that aren't. Well, first of all, they're not good. But secondly, they're not so bad that they're fun because there's a lot of movies that fall into that category. The Room, for example, is like the quintessential example of that. Yes. And I've seen yeah. voluntarily, I've watched The Room probably over 12, maybe 15 times, just in different sets of friends and parties and that sorts of thing. Um, I wouldn't do The Room as a worst idea season because it's, it's a bit obvious and it also would be a bit too fun the key is to find something that will be genuinely painful for guy and i to put ourselves through so that's what we've tried to tend towards and that is really mediocre films um and grown-ups in sex in the city and and we are your friends definitely fall into that criteria does it like i guess watching movies for work and and picking these very mediocre movies for um, the work that you do does that sort of change how you you tend to view movies away from the podcast like are you a little bit more hesitant to to watch certain movies or do you do more research on movies now having i guess subjected yourself to these pretty barren wastelands of, of movie uh, quality i don't know if it's true but it genuinely feels like i've got less time to watch movies as a result of doing yeah. the podcast <laughs> but um no, I still I love I love the movies. I love going to movies. It because we're doing now in this season a different movie every week of a different Emmanuel softcore porno. Uh, it has removed the 
intense psychological torture element but when we were in the throes of that particularly when we were getting towards the end of the first season I did have this thing where uh, no matter if I was watching a movie for the first time could be on TV could be at the cinema I would start paying heavy attention to the background actors like I couldn't focus on what was happening in the foreground of shot and that is something that the repeated watches of, of uh, Grown Ups 2 had sort of trained my eye to divert from the main action and try and find something novel going on in the background so that messed me up for a bit yeah I, I definitely think like I could tell listening to the the Home Alone season like you you were sort of thinking of, of certain ways to uh, to definitely i guess get uh, more out of the episodes as you can um i could definitely not uh, do that myself so full credit to you but the human I brain mean- craves novelty and that's why watching a movie <laughs> 52 times is such a uniquely fucked thing to do to a human <laughs> And I mean, it, it, it's good that you are uh, you're, you're bringing some guests on as well occasionally, so that you're you're not alone in in this this hell. Um, and I mean, it's it, it's it's fun to see the the guests that you bring on. Obviously, um, Rose Matafeo and and Alice Sneddon, obviously uh, part of the the Little Empire sort of family. Um, Melanie Bracewell, this this sort of current crop of of New Zealand comedians coming through and really, I guess, doing big things uh, not only in australia but and across the world you must be stoked for this uh this ever-growing family oh 100 percent. and the reality is like these are just our friends these are our mates in new zealand yeah. i mean i flattered with rose um for a bit uh, a few years ago now so that yeah these are just our friends and it's fantastic that the rest of the world are finding out they're as funny as we knew that they always were um i think new zealanders have always got this cultural shyness about going oh yeah I might be funny for New Zealand, but you know that's that's it. <laughs> but as more of us are sort of leaving the coop and creating stuff overseas, I think we're proving that you know we're just as funny as anyone else. I saw online that apparently um, Wellington Paranormal was the number one streaming show in America last week, which just yes, absolutely wild. Yeah, definitely. Like obviously the the flight of the Concords boys, sort of, I guess were, were the, the trendsetters for that and then obviously bringing across people like Taika Waititi and that that sort of, you know, the New Zealand culture and, and comedic um, scene is, is really sort of taking off for sure. Yeah, man. We had our brief chance at um, nabbing some of that as well. I'm not sure if you're aware, but we uh, had YouTube commission a pilot of The Worst Idea, um, yes. which is available <laughs> now on, on YouTube. Um, I put it up online because we got permission from our producers to do so. But we lived in a New York City sewer for a week and watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows three times a day uh, to try and get the definitive <laughs> method review of that film, which is a concept we made up. Method reviewing is when you enter the world of the film to review the film properly. Did it uh, did it change anything? Like, if if let's say if you were doing that particular film in uh, in normal circumstances, like you would for any regular uh, worst idea of all time episode, did it change the the opinion that you had, or was it just couldn't honestly uh, you know, tell? Not- yeah, I've never seen it outside <laughs> of that environment. <laughs> I you just don't really don't need know. to. <laughs> oh dear. I suspect not a lot would have changed. It's not a no, it's not a great it's not Oscar worthy. I'll put it that way. No, definitely not. It, it's definitely not uh, anything to write home about. But uh, of course, Tim, we we have got you on the show for uh, for for video game purposes. And um, normally at this sort of point, we we like to 
ask our guest about their sort of formative years in gaming and what they sort of grew up with and and what they continued to to play as they they got a little bit older what were some of the the sort of first memories for you as a video gamer what's was it a a first console a first game or or something um, altogether different we had when i was a kid i'm trying to remember where it came from but we had a commodore 64 so like (laughs) i got started on some archaic og i mean console in quote marks some people do consider it a console but if you're not familiar (laughs) with what a commodore 64 is it's a very very old computer home computer and it was one of the first uh forays by anyone it was around the same time as apple i guess uh into like the home computing market making a, a mass um compute device for like families and and regular consumers and it's quite hard to operate you've got to like learn command lines just to boot up games and things but it was awesome we had an enormous library of games which i assume must have all been pirated now that i think about it but you had (laughs) games running on like a bizarre cassette tape deck there was like data tapes that you would put in um five and a quarter inch floppy disks i think there was a disk drive on there and yeah so it was all i've just got memories of punching in i think it was like run space quote mark asterisk quote mark comma eight comma one enter and that would boot up the the game that you holy hell that is yeah yeah insane given that you know for someone like me who grew up with a Nintendo 64, it was just like, put the cartridge in, turn it on. Now I'm like having, someone like you is having to learn like lines of code and, and you know. As a some- as a seven, eight, nine-year-old, you know, like it was quite cool though because it's, <laughs> it was very basic, but it sort of did introduce you to the concept of, I guess, what coding was or what it could do. Yeah. Like you punch in this string of characters and it tells the computer to kick something off. It was pretty neat. Yeah, it's definitely not something that would happen nowadays for sure i think we've we've all been sort of uh spoiled with the the ease of use for for a lot of consoles but um do you remember any of the games that you were you were playing um well from that commodore 64 era there was one in particular called Wizball, which is incredible and the soundtrack i revisit often because considering the limitations of what they had to work with to create a soundtrack for that it's so cool i just think the music on it is awesome um, what was I playing? We had a Sega. I've got fond memories of uh, Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Um, my brother had a Game Boy. I remember uh, Kirby's Dreamland 2, like monochromatic. Ooh, yes. You know, this is are, some old we, school stuff. Are we talking the the big, like, yellow brick Game Boy, the original one? Because I had one of them when I was I was young, and it was like I you needed, like... Gray. What, did okay. you say yellow? You, maybe you had, like, a special Pokemon edition or something. No, no, like mine was the original Game Boy that was a, a sort of a black and white sort of screen. And it was, it definitely wasn't as like thin as the Game Boy Color was. It was a like a brick essentially. Yeah. And it took like six AA batteries yes. or something just to yeah, run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just the, like, and I was like, okay, we need to get like seven or eight of these just to get, you know, maybe an hour of, of gameplay in. And I had like Tetris and Mario and Yoshi and, and, and like all these weird puzzle games. It was like... Yeah, definitely not anything that, um, you know, came out on the Game Boy Color, which was a little bit more after that time. But yeah, I, th- I thought that was what you were sort of referring to. I was like, yeah, that was I'm that pretty was sure it's the same unit, younger. man. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the same yeah. one. That old black and white screen and it just ate batteries. I remember like pulling sickies 
as a child so that I could stay home and play with my older brother's Game Boy. And it was... It was a Final Fantasy game, but I think it had a slightly different name. But it was like Final Fantasy 2. It was an RPG, but in your party you had like, one of them was a, a squid, like an octopus. And there was they were all like <laughs> crazy animals and it barely made sense. But man, it was so fun. It was awesome. Yeah. Man, that does, uh, that does sound pretty interesting. What sort of games do you tend to play? Like you've obviously just mentioned Final Fantasy there. Are you a, a, an RPG guy or do you tend to sort of uh, dip your toes into to certain genres? I had I had Final Fantasy seven and eight. Um, like I played them extensively as a teenager. I don't get into RPGs a lot now. I've kind of backed away from. I think I very easily could be a bit of a sad, intense, hardcore, addicted gamer. Like I've recognised that in myself <laughs> and purposefully as an adult tried to pull back a little bit because um, I think those those uh, chemical tendencies towards addiction are definitely there so um i for that reason i don't have a console we did buy a switch but it was mainly for my wife when um covid kicked off she's a doctor so i was like man i could start throwing some solutions to how you can unwind <laughs> when you come home at the moment <laughs> got animal crossing and a switch um yes wise choice <laughs> yeah yeah but I these days like the games I really enjoy weirdly are um, resource management games like there's one called Frostpunk for the PC that I oh, absolutely yes. love. Uh, yeah. I've I've clocked up like a good amount of hours in that. I played. I've got a lot of hours clocked up on No Man's Sky um, because I was so fascinated by the history of the production of that game the the massive hype train it came out cataclysmic disaster of a release like really really bad yeah. uh, and then over the years it's just been slowly polishing itself off and adding content for free and now it's like this phenomenal game yeah. um and and such a great buy it's usually like around 60 bucks new zealand on steam and sometimes it's on sale and they just added like a vr mode for free and it's yeah, effectively yeah. got you know five or six full dlc packs that they just they give out for free once you bought the game it, it, it's definitely like one of the the big gaming redemption stories that you definitely hear about and i w- i definitely was like hyped on it right at the start like i i was in the same boat i was like yeah this this idea sounds sick like trillion planets you can visit and they're all like super auto generated and all these animals and stuff and i i was playing for the first like couple hours and i was like this is it isn't it like this is this is all i'm just gonna mine mine rocks on this planet and avoid the animals while i'm my suit's burning alive with this like acid rain or whatever and then go to the next planet and it's snow and i'll do the same thing and it's like oh no like yeah (laughs) but I, i tried so hard to defend that game as well everyone was like this game is crap. Like everyone's just doing the same thing. And I was like, yeah, but you've got to be in that mindset to play the game. You, you take your time and enjoy it. And everyone, yeah, everyone Matthew, was giving you me like a, you're not, you're not, you're not working for the game developers here. Come on, man. Look, but, I know um, how hard it is, but yeah, <laughs> I did. I bought, uh, I pre-ordered, which I know you're never supposed to do for especially PC games, but I pre-ordered Cyberpunk 2077. Oh, um, okay. And I fully feel like I've got my money's worth just by being able to like enjoy all of the memes and the anger and the community outpouring like as a genuine consumer with skin in the game. 
like that I actually thought it was not a bad experience I think on PC mm. people people got off pretty lightly obviously on um, old generation consoles it's like a barely playable game but I just I'm more kind of interested by the I don't know that the the stuff that's going on around the production of it you know and I think it paid for itself with just being able to enjoy all the memes yeah I I, um, I was one of the unlucky people who managed to finish the full game on PlayStation 4 uh, the what? base PlayStation 4 yes um, wow I only had maybe six or seven crashes and they were sort of near the end but um, even from the start the game did not look uh, no in any way sort of like graphically capable um but i do agree like it there's i think under the surface of that game there is definitely something good there i think it's just going to take a lot of time if they're going to sort of uh, redeem anything in that game but i mean look i enjoyed it for what it is um i i had no issues with it apart from (laughs) the multiple crashes that i've had um yeah you're very very brave for for pre-ordering that though like or at least any game on on pc i was in for a penny and for a pound i kind of because i had been playing a lot of no man's sky and i could kind of smell the hype train getting a bit a bit fast and loose i was like man i want to be involved with whatever this turns out to be if it's either like a huge success or a cataclysmic failure it would be very interesting because i don't i don't really play I don't often play current gen like AAA titles. I'm not like a, I've never got in with COD or any of those sorts of huge AAA franchises. I, d- I used to play a lot of StarCraft in my time um, when okay. I was a teenager. And so I did probably the only other game I can think of that I've ever pre-ordered was, oh, well, <laughs> I, I pre-ordered um, StarCraft 2 and spent a lot of time with that. The only other one in franchise that I was crazy about, which is not the one I intended to talk about today, but actually I, I could switch into it um as wipeout like that's the only game that has driven oh. me to i've bought whole consoles multiple times to play the new wipeout game i bought a oh, psp really? <laughs> for wipeout i got a vita for wipeout um yeah i i love that series and i miss it dearly one of the few people who has ever really bought a, a PSP Vita. I actually but, think uh, I got one kind of for free through a radio. I worked at a radio station. I managed to like squirrel a review unit from every. So I think I <laughs> don't even qualify for that. That reimantle. Oh man! I mean, I I do agree. Wipeout is a, a franchise that I, I think people sort of overlooked. Uh, it it was definitely I think a bit ahead of its time. It, um, it absolutely was like. Yeah, people, I don't think Wipeout ever quite got its dues because I, I think it was a super important franchise and a really critical, I think it was a launch title for the PlayStation 1 that brought a whole lot of new gamers into that console who had never really played video games before and gave people an appreciation for what what console gaming could be. Like just mm. the soundtrack alone of having premier dance acts like chemical brothers and fluke and all of these uk dance acts that were like they were the soundtrack of the game that was quite a a revolutionary thing at the time you will i i was uh like when i played it as i was younger it was definitely it was too fast for me like i i I love you know racing games where i'm able to you know slow it down and sort of you know get a good racing line i'm just like bouncing off walls trying to like keep this thing from from going on it was like that and f-zero yeah. um 
earlier on in the Nintendo days, I was like, I can't handle this this speed. I'm like, <laughs> I, I know that like if you get into a routine, it's fair enough. But especially games, yeah, like Wipeout, I was like, I can't. I just can't dig in. And I love like, you know, your Forzas and your F1s and those sorts of regular, you know, wheels on the ground sort of sure. racing games. But um, yeah, Wipeout was was difficult for me to to get into, but I can definitely see the appeal. Yeah, it was awesome. And I've my oldest brother as well, he's a graphic designer. So he was really, uh, you know, in admiration and awe of the attention to detail and the stylistic choices and the heavy yeah. design that all the Wipeout games, bar probably Fusion, which was a bit of a misstep and considered by many fans as non-canonical. Um, but <laughs> all the other ones, the, the early ones they did in concert with the Designers Republic, who were a firm in the UK and the booklets the menus like they all look amazing every team has its own really cool logo and cool use of them and yeah yeah they, they did they did a uh, i think a hd remaster for the ps4 a couple of years back um and that was sort of like an interesting deep dive in to sort of jump back in and see you know what i'd been missing over the last couple of years and it was like that that was the first thing i remembered as well it was like the, the graphical style and the just the aesthetic that wipeout had uh, I think I sort of underappreciated when I was a kid, and now I'm looking at. It, I was like, "This is sick. This yeah. is the sort of stuff that I want. I want to get into." So yeah, I definitely such, love that. It's a shame because I I think now that IP is sort of dead. The studio that made it, um, which turned into oh, what was it called? It was like Cyanosis or something. It had a logo of an owl. Oh, a, a, a Cygnosis, yes. Cygnosis, yeah. And then that became something Liverpool. What was the Oh, it did. Whatever it was, oh, they, they yeah. I think they became uh, Studio Liverpool, and they did uh, a bunch of the early um, uh, Formula One games. Actually, yeah. Ah, okay. They uh, they I, they did uh, Destruction Derby two and Overboard. Oh yeah, they also did Lemmings. Damn. Oh man, Overboard! I remember that. That <laughs> um, yeah, was a good and one. Then <laughs> I think they went out of business, and so the IP sort of is like i don't know i don't even know who owns it but it's, it seems like sony doesn't have a massive desire to bring it back um but i just keep thinking how amazing that game would be in vr like imagine a vr oh experience of wipeout it would be incredible i i'm someone who gets like pretty easily motion sick uh, so <laughs> that would not I, be for you no definitely not i, I think the the double whammy of, of getting headaches in vr and then motion sick um, in in a fast moving vehicle is probably not uh, ideal, but um, yeah. Anything else that, that that sort of caught your eye? I guess as you were growing up, like you, you did mention a lot of the the sort of the early PlayStation era. Was was a PlayStation a big one for you? It was. We got a PlayStation for Christmas when I was about ten. My dad bought it, and I'm one of four kids. I'm a middle child. We didn't have like a ton of money growing up, so we could not get over the fact that he that we had like. A PlayStation. It was it was crazy. Um, I remember like we just we kept asking. We're like, how long do we have it? Because we just we assume we're renting it for like some period yeah. of time, which would have been which would have been awesome. He was like, no, no, we own it. We're like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'm not gonna pay um, pay money to someone for this. Like, it can't yeah. just be here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the great thing about PlayStation One in particular is they used to release these demo discs, which had like a ton of pretty like long playable demos of games yes. that you could sample and they were free um they would often come out with like playstation magazines and i'm not sure how else you got them but i remember having a lot of them lying around 
Um, and one of the games that I played on a demo disc that I really enjoyed was Abe's Odyssey, Oddworld, Abe's Odyssey. And yep. that is that is the game that um, that I wanted to sort of more center on. For, for yes, this that podcast. is that is the game that we have uh, we've chosen today, ladies and gentlemen. If you couldn't tell from the the title uh, of this episode, Tim's uh, chosen Oddworld: Abe's Odyssey, a I believe a 1997 game. You did just mention uh, the demo discs. One like I I definitely remember having them for my PS2, but going to a cousin's house it was that exact disc playing like the first maybe what 15 to 20 minutes of of odd world and i was like it was a long it was a long demo like more yeah. often than not most demos would only last maybe like five minutes and then you got to restart it and play it over again but like which you would yes oh absolutely i i i'm straight back in like five minutes of international superstar soccer oh, fuck yeah of course yeah. i'm gonna be playing that again um the one thing that caught my eye obviously as a kid for odd world was how scary it was i thought this this game was fucking terrifying i know what you mean there's um they've made subsequent odd worlds which i guess we can talk about where they've kind of refreshed the the look of it a little bit um there's there's been pc releases in more recent years and nothing's quite captured the there was there was like a Especially as a little kid, I don't know if you would say they were fully scary now, but there was like a real intensity about them. Yes. There was definitely a lot of comedy about the game, and that's what I, you know, I enjoyed that aspect as well. For example, you could make Abe fart. Like a core yeah. mechanic of the game was that you could, he would communicate with his fellow, he was part of an alien yes. race yep. called uh, Madukins, I think. Is that right? Yeah. I should have had some research Madukins, before, Madukins. but <laughs> Madukins, Madukins, something like that. And they were basically enslaved by the uh, Gluckens, I think they were called. Yes. Who yep. were a, a cartoonish depiction of just c- corporate figures, just corporate managers. So they were like trench-coated, um, armless figures with these broad shoulders that just went down to the floor. Um, and, yeah, so Abe's job was to... they He basically was part of this enslaved race working in a factory that were about to become the next big... Uh, food product because these these manager class of aliens had basically wiped out all the other animals by farming them to extinction um so abe you know peers into the boardroom and sees this plan up on the board and makes the decision to try and escape and bring everyone with him which is quite scary like that is kind of a terrifying premise it's like hey so you're going to play this character whose entire species is about to get eaten and yeah I th- like as i've grown up you know, it's been interesting to kind of think back to my first experiences with um, Abe's Odyssey and wonder how much of it had programmed some ideas into me or maybe like hooked into parts of my personality that were always there but not quite through a political lens. Because the whole thing was quite sort of political. Like there was a lot of class commentary going on in this children's game (laughs) which functioned a lot like lemmings like you just told people to follow you and led them through a series of um traps and mazes and things but it was interwoven with this deep lore of the world building that had gone on like the art design was incredible this the storyline and these little bit characters that would come in and guide you were um 
so obviously informed by indigenous culture, first peoples like from around different countries and parts of the world. There was a character called Big Face who was this shamanistic um, mentor who was guiding Abe through and and teaching him how to sort of uh, expand his powers through the game. And there were all of these concepts about like, I guess, corporate overrun and how we need to um, return to nature and find more equilibrium with our natural surroundings. And, you know, thinking about that now is so wild because I was playing that game when I was probably eight or nine for the first time and playing it a lot. I loved that game. And it probably did like infuse a few of these ideas into me. Yeah, I like that opening sort of cutscene of him sort of explaining what what's happening to to his race like i i watched that so many times i think the the one thing that i sort of thought was kind of funny as i rewatched it uh, a couple of days ago just to sort of prepare was the fact that he's sort of just slumming at late night you know cleaning up the floors and then the boardroom is just like next door yeah. i feel like if if it's high profile execs they're probably going to have you know maybe a higher class boardroom or something that's a little bit further away from the the doldrums of the uh the meat processing plant i think um, that's so. it's very downton abbey upstairs downstairs stuff though you know because i think it's just their that's their boardroom and they're so uh you know they're so filled with hubris that they've just the cleaners whatever if one of them happens to hear this dastardly plan we have to wipe out their species we're not too concerned because you know we've got absolute control over them anyway that's fair i can understand that uh and i think the other thing that you know is is so universally known about the game is obviously just as you mentioned earlier that the sort of the text or sort of like discussion um buttons how you would sort of communicate with uh other madokans it was because it, it was so rudimentary it was like hello hello follow me okay and it was just like that was that was so core to the game. It was the thing that I remember most. And then obviously, you know, the farting was, yeah. was part of it as well. <laughs> but um, the chanting as well to sort of yeah. possess uh, the sligs, the the little like enemy characters with the guns. Um, yeah. So they I were sort that... of the Praetorian guard for this yes. manager class where they had, they were kind of like robotic slugs which is yeah. a weird description and that's not a very good visual, but they were sort of, <laughs> I feel like they were in some ways based on like a mollusk, like a, a snail or a slug, but they had this, um, yeah, metal robotic shell and uh, these kind of tentacle squiddy kind of things coming out of their mouth. Yeah. At the front. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they, uh, they had like, they all had uh, guns. They had like semi-automatic rifles, which just seemed like almost <laughs> part, part of their arm, like built onto them. Uh, I think they were in the, the only character with guns, which is was kind of cool. And you could enter a state where you would go into a trance by chanting, and then you would send your spirit into their body, and then you were controlling the slugs, which is like, for the time, it was just, it had so many of these mechanics, which I had never seen in a game before. It's not like I was a hardcore gamer, I was a kid. But, you mm. know, at a time where... I guess there were some innovative stuff going on because I'm thinking of like Kirby was was an interesting one where you could observe, you could breathe and this is a yeah no, that a makes very sense. old game on a black and white you know Game Boy this is going <laughs> back but even that had some interesting dynamics where you could absorb an enemy and the enemies had different powers you could swallow them and take on their powers it was sort of another yeah. extension of that 
But Abe's Odyssey just felt like it was adding so many new elements that actually worked really well for the gameplay. They weren't just gimmicky, but they were like really cool and they felt cool to do. Um, well, they, they were integral parts before. as well. They were integral in the sense that like I hadn't really thought about the what the game sort of is in its in its most broad sense. Like it's a puzzle game, if, yeah. if anything. Like the fact that you have to lead these fellow Madokans to the bird portals and, and start the chant to open them up and save them. Um, and then the chanting to possess the sligs. Like you could shoot other sligs with your gun. You could purposely f- fall them down holes. You could even just explode them. Like they could yeah. inter- like spontaneously combust when you had no more use for them. Like I, I probably didn't understand that as a kid. Like I was like, oh, cool. I'm the enemy now. I can just run around and shoot people. There was there was a genuine, you know, reason behind yes. possessing these characters and and doing these certain things. And I think having that only you know twenty to thirty minute period in the demo probably didn't showcase that as much as you know when you start getting into the later parts of the game where you have to be very meticulous with where you go and you you defuse the uh, the bombs, push yeah. the button on the bombs, and it, it, it's it's a difficult game like there were there are many people who were sort of like um describing sort of the difficulty curve that happens with this game even from like you know a couple minutes in so um i think as a kid i probably enjoyed it for for different reasons yeah it was it was it definitely was a hard game but i think when you're a kid you've also if there's something that can keep you hooked in there there is this sheer bloody mindedness that i think kids have with it it's sort of similar to what I had with Wipeout. I was like, I love this music, so I'm going to learn how to not ram myself against a wall. <laughs> Such a steep learning curve on Wipeout. A somewhat steep learning curve on Abe's Odyssey it was a little bit more intuitive. But you're right, especially if you're trying to save all of the Madukans and, and as it goes through the game, not only is the sequence of what you do really important in the puzzle, but it's also got that added dimension of you've got to be doing stuff really quickly in real time. Like you'll possess a slig and then you've got to instruct the workers to duck so that you can shoot someone yeah. who's behind them and stuff like that. Like quite, you know, complicated series of things. But there's this this element which is so core to that that kind of gameplay of um, platformers and puzzle games that got lost in the transition to PC. And I, I, I'm not quite sure if I'm going to do a good job of explaining this, so I'll, uh, I'll just try and try my best to stumble my way through it. But okay, <laughs> there's a very fixed way on how you can control the character and where the character can wind up on screen. And there's a very defined number of positions that the sprites can be in and so because of that the puzzle can be replicated the way that you solve the puzzle can be replicated very easily when they um brought out new and tasty i think was the first release where they brought a, a, an original odd world title to pc and they i think they before that did a they might have done a refresh of abe's odyssey but they had they had changed it because they had to rebuild it using a pc engine and so there was a bit more of those sort of loose physics involved where there's sort of like almost an infinite number of ways subtly that things could go. If you throw a rock, it will actually have, it will use a physics engine to dynamically th- throw the rock based on 
you know how hard you throw it and where this character is and that character is and where this thing's swinging and that rock you could throw it the same way each time but it would wind up in a different position on the pc ones whereas in the playstation one versions of all these games and no weird do i think of this more than abe's odyssey so like if you do the same thing you get the same exact result and so it does get you used to solving these puzzles really quickly i don't know if that makes sense but it's this no it, it certainly between does games in the old console and new pc worlds no it definitely does like it, it definitely reminds me of how they uh they did the the remasters for crash bandicoot they did the insane trilogy um how when they were sort of refreshing the game they basically had to do it from scratch and create it on a, on a new engine um a lot of the time that people were sort of commenting on how the original jump was a little bit different to how the the new jump was in the in the remasters and, and people had to sort of refresh their way of thinking because even people who were like speed running the game or, or finding loopholes around certain levels like they were timing their jumps in certain areas and and, and using all of these unique plans to get through certain levels so the the way that certain games had been remastered and sort of um affected or created from scratch in that regard because they had been remastered um brings new elements to the game which i think is is interesting having not played uh new and tasty i, I mean i probably should uh, given how i guess like well it was received and how good it actually looked um I definitely should jump in I think pretty soon I, I was always just very drawn to the sort of almost like eight almost eight bit sort of style yeah. and the sort of the 2D um, on a 3D plane almost like the the, the the graphic design for each of the levels was so like unique there was something yeah. about it I just can't put my finger on but it was just so so odd and, and so like interestingly designed I just couldn't tell what it was I think part of what that was is the way that that game was built because of a sort of limitation of the technology and how much space they had to work with on a disc and how much RAM they had access to is it was a platformer where you would literally run from one side of the screen to the other and that screen would end and then you're in another screen. It was sort of wipe, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, each screen was its own bespoke puzzle that you would solve and then go to another screen. And because of that, because it wasn't this kind of open world uh, landscape that they had to render all at once, they basically had the ability to make these beautiful artworks out of every screen that you saw because there were only a set number of them. And all of them had these incredible details and they had little visual jokes and like the LED signs that would scroll across when you're inside the factory or when you broke free of Rupture Farms, you would be... um, is that what it was called, by the way? Rupture Farms? Pretty sure it was. Yes, that's correct. I'm going by like sense memory now from when I was a kid. <laughs> um, when you broke free of that, you know, and you were in the wilderness and, and there were these beautiful kind of landscapes that were behind you in the background of, of the hills that you were sort of like running through. And yeah, they had the ability to do that, to really treat each frame as a painting, which was, yeah. you don't really get in open world games, which are so popular now yeah like you sort of mentioned like the the little led screens that came around like the the comedy in this game i think was was underappreciated obviously i think as a kid you know you're, you're so sort of creeped out by how dark and, and sort of unsettling it is but there's still a lot of like comedy in this game like even when you load the game up for the first time it says abe's odyssey is loading so get over it so it's yeah, just like yeah. the, the way that they were sort of 
juxtaposing the the sort of dark and and sort of really concerning nature of the game with this just like off kilter off the wall comedy um was was really you know not done before and it's a crazy collection of things that they throw into that pot because it's essentially in some ways like a, it's a sci-fi world i guess you would describe it as even though it doesn't really feel like it but it is because it's it's aliens and it's robots and you play an alien trying to save other aliens um so it's kind of got this sci-fi element as a backdrop the mechanics are that it's a side-scrolling platform puzzle game but then it's also <laughs> got this really hilarious kind of dark comedy element running through it as well so it's it's a bizarre collection of things to throw in one game yeah for sure like i i've i actually uh dipped my toes into uh the new one that came out on ps5 not long ago i think it was uh soul storm that came out yeah pretty recently. right i haven't played it, it at all yet what's it like it's uh it's an interesting mix like they they've certainly tried to maintain that um that almost 2d on a 3d uh uh, like platform sort of scale um, but they've thrown in new mechanics uh, sort of throwing different types of um, like energy bombs and things like that but at the core of it the, the you know the idea is the same you're saving your your fellow Madokans, uh getting them to safety it, it, it's an interesting sort of spin on it like I, I don't know whether it's a direct continuation or if it's like a um like a refreshing of the story like it, it's it's not so much clear like i've only spent maybe like an hour or so into it but it definitely seems like it's a a new like addition to the story rather than sort of rebooting it but mm. yeah like if you get the chance definitely get definitely uh take a look at it but um yeah i i, I think that that whole series in general like even um abe's exodus and and munch's odyssey and yeah, stranger's right. wrath like yeah all of these like weird and bizarre sort of stories that, that come through the the odd world franchise like there's very few franchises like it and it's uh interesting the ambition that it speaks to as well of like having all of these disparate elements but just having the confidence to put them all into one game and then having all these strange games the odd world franchise was originally from memory supposed to be seven games on the playstation one like the developers had mapped out odd world as being the series of seven games so obviously oh, abe's, abe's odyssey was the first and then abe's exodus was the second and then there was supposed to be a whole bunch more on that generation of console um for whatever reason uh, that didn't happen. And so I think uh, Munch's Odyssey and Stranger's Wrath were ones that were versions of things that were planned in that original, what do you call a seven series? You have like a trilogy. I don't know what that's called when it's seven. Quin, no, Septology. Five, Septology maybe, yeah. Well, maybe it was five actually. It was five or seven, but there was a, if you think to back then, like this was an original IP for a, a new console for sony who were a new console maker like that's a pretty big swing for the fence it's ambitious yeah yeah <laughs> oh man I, I think as as we sort of start to round up i i wanted to to ask the question obviously we normally ask the guest to uh, pick a game based on the influence that it had on either their personal life or, or their career what does uh, odd world's abe's odyssey um what does it mean to you and, and how do you think it's it's been such an influential part of of your life 
Well, weirdly, what I mentioned right at the start, like this is such a bizarre thing to even think about, but it, it might have either piqued my interest because of this, I don't know, value set that I guess transformed into my personal politics later in life, or perhaps it actually made an imprint and changed some of my um, way that I view the world uh, in personal perspective <laughs> on class structure and class warfare and those sorts of things. Um, beyond that, the game has got a phenomenal sound design to it, which I think even as a kid, I kind of had a sense of of realizing that elements separate and apart from the rest of the game, um, which I think I've always had a real interest in in audio stuff. I worked in radio for six years. I I I'm a comedian by trade, but like I've spent a lot of time doing podcasting. I'm really interested in in sound stuff and sound gear. Um, so that was probably an early thing that showed me the importance of good sound and storytelling, I guess you would say. Yeah. yeah. That's a, that's an interesting way to put it for sure. And uh, hopefully when uh, you, you've run out of, of mediocre movies to, uh, to uh, I guess, cover for 52 weeks of the year, perhaps maybe games are the next way forward or a side project for you and Guy. So hopefully that seems to continue on for that one. Maybe. We'll find out. I think, I think yeah, if that happens, it won't be Worst Idea. Worst Idea is all about us punishing ourselves for the enjoyment of the masses. <laughs> so we'll see if we can fly another banner for stuff we actually enjoy. <laughs> well, you could easily play games that you don't enjoy. So, And there's plenty of them too. But uh, yeah, I think it's probably... Given the amount of uh, bad juju you've put on yourselves, I think it's probably time you you, you treat yourself to something good. <laughs> but yes, appreciate the sentiment. That, yeah, <laughs> that is it uh, for this episode, ladies and gentlemen. A big thank you to my guest Tim Bat for uh, joining me on this episode. Tim, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I'm everywhere, baby. Twitter, yes. Instagram, also yes. Facebook, you betcha. Um, all the links are at timbat.co.nz. I think Twitter's Tim underscore bat. Facebook's facebook.com slash timbatcomedian. Instagram's timbatnz. Really did not do a good job on grabbing, you know, the same tag across all the platforms, but that's just how it's panned out. I think I think you've done pretty well. And of course, uh, the worst idea of all time can also be found at worstideaofalltime.com. And you can also hear them on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much I think everywhere that you get your podcast from, do give it a listen and uh, witness two grown men basically uh, falling apart a week at a time. But uh, And of course, if you would like to follow everything that we're doing on One Perfect Game, you can do so at OPG Pod, and you can follow me on Twitter at It's Tilby. But from myself, Matt Tilby, and my special guest, Tim Bat, it is goodbye for now. Take care.